Hey, this is Jay. Before we start the episode, I wanted to share some really exciting news. Calibra was just named a leader in the 2023 Forrester Wave Report for data governance solutions. If you don't know what the Forrester Wave is, it's essentially a guide for us buyers considering options for software. If you want to get to know Forrester a bit better, go back and check out our recent episodes with Raluca Alexandru and Michelle Getz from Forrester. I love these conversations. We had a total blast. And I can't resist making a plug here either. To learn more about the report, go to Calibra.com slash data download dash Forrester Wave dash DG. And we're going to put all of that in the show notes as well, so that it's easy for you to navigate to them and check out those reports. All right, back to the show. This is the Data Download, your guide to upping your game when it comes to managing and accessing data in your organization. For Calibra, I'm your host, Jay Millich. So what's it like to be a chief data officer in the government? What's different for their teams compared to how it goes in a business? Or what's similar? I've only been at for-profit businesses myself, and recently I've begun meeting with public sector data pros, and I'm kind of dying to learn more. I have so many questions, right? How do we even get started? (laughs) My head's spinning. All right, before I spin out of control, it's about time to dive deep on this. So we're gonna hear from a true expert. I'm Adita Karkera. I'm the Chief Data Officer for Deloitte's Government and Public Services. I've been with the firm for about two years, and uh, prior to that, spent about 21 years in public sector service with the state of Arkansas. In my current role, I lead our internal data strategy, but I also lead our suite of CDO services, and I continue to serve as an executive advisor to several government clients, helping them set up their data offices, as well as continue to advise them on their key data and AI initiatives. So exciting role. Yeah, that really is. My world for my career has always been in, let's say, the commercial world. Can you tell us What is the data office like in a government capacity? Tell us what's on the mind of a chief data officer specifically within the government sector. I think in the last decades, we've seen the increased focus on organizations setting up data offices in their spaces, right? And it has been the same effect in the government and the public sector. I got appointed as a deputy CDO for the state of Arkansas back in 2017. That's when the role was first created for the state of Arkansas. So our General Assembly created uh, the role that defined the chief data officer and establishing a data office for the state. Right. And uh, that was on the state side. And 2018 is where the Foundations of Evidence-Based Policymaking Act came along for the federal government and was enacted in 2019 that mandated agencies to start establishing a data office and uh, identifying a chief data officer for these agencies. That was 2019. So thinking through 2019 to today's date, 2023, you know, we've seen a huge shift in how many different agencies have stepped forward and have established data offices and have identified chief data officers in this space. There was also a mandate very quickly following the Evidence Act called the Open Data Act, which also mandated that chief data officers and uh, agencies start to publish uh, machine-readable data inventories and data. So uh, a lot has been happening in the government sector that has kind of continued to reinforce the value of data in this space and has helped shape and evolve the role of the CDO in the government space for sure. 
This is really interesting. Okay, so you're saying that, that uh, like many things in life, the notion of building out data offices has been a mandated practice. It's not really a voluntary thing where agencies feel it's important to do, so we'll fund it. It's actually mandated by these two regulations. Largely so. There are, of course, agencies and organizations that have had CDOs probably even before the mandate came into the picture. But I think like with anything else, I think uh, having some guidance around why and how you create these data offices has uh, definitely accelerated that movement. Now, I will say, like, I talk to so many different CDOs in the government space, and I always hear a slightly different story and what their role and responsibilities are. Okay. So the Evidence Act did create the mandate for establishing CDOs, but it did not have adequate clarity on the responsibilities of the CDO for each organization. So every time I talk to a CDO in the government space, I typically start off with, you know, like, what is your specific role? Like, what are you responsible for? Where are you situated in the organization? What does your ops model look like? What funding do you have? And I say those things, Jay, to emphasize that each CDO office has been slightly different in their focus and their strategic priorities, and also how they are staffed and the funding and the budgeting that has been allocated to them. Yeah, I can imagine. So a question comes to mind, since the act is called evidence, I think you said evidence-based policy, Mm -hmm. I would imagine that they they did have uh, some clarity on what that means, right? So it mandates a CDO. But it doesn't provide clarity on what that role is and what it does. However, can you give us some examples of what evidence-based policy means? Maybe that'll kind of give us a little idea of what you face or what that role faces, the challenges that they face in in doing that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And actually, you make me think about a a recent publication that we have just released from my office called the CDO Playbook for Government CDOs. So if you haven't checked that out, I would would encourage um, you, Hmm. your team, and the listeners to go out and check that out. And it kind of hits exactly the questions that you posed to me right now. Mm -hmm. It talks about the role of the government CDO, the clear responsibilities that we have accumulated through our expertise and in our experience dealing with other CDOs and have curated sort of a CDO playbook that walks you through a CDO's journey in the public sector. Mm -hmm. So we talk about how are they establishing data offices, what their key priorities are, how do you overcome certain challenges that they might face in their journey. So it's a series of eight articles and an introductory article introducing the role of the CDO that I highly encourage our listeners to go out and check out. But largely, Jay, as you were talking about, you know, what are those high level responsibilities? Uh And of course, you know, there are some key areas of focus that are mentioned in the mandate, which are around creating machine readable data inventories, for example. Right. There is some guidance on how to set up and what to set up for your data governance bodies. There has been an increased focus on doing skills assessments and how to increase staffing and how to upskill your workforce to keep up with the current technological landscape and so forth. So there are some requirements mentioned there. But again, like I said, each data office and each organization is different. Mm -hmm. So we see a slightly different flavor of the role of the CDO in several organizations and CDOs that I've had the opportunity to work with. I can imagine. Absolutely. And each organization, each agency, I should say, its ability to capture data and use data is probably also really different in each agency as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, and all of it, of course, you know, eventually lines up to what their mission goals are, 
what are they solving for? What kind of citizen services or experiences are they catering for? We're starting to see CDOs come up with data strategies, aligning it to mission outcomes and kind of coming up with full-fledged implementation plans on how they're going to operationalize those strategies. Have you seen this role evolve in the past, uh, I guess it's four years or so, since these acts have been passed? Absolutely. We have seen the role evolve some over the last several years that uh, we've seen this, not just in the federal space, but also the state space. Okay. I think earlier there was a conception of CDOs are just, you know, back office leaders, just technical leaders. Yeah. And I think now there's an increased focus on acknowledging that they are no longer just technical leaders, but they play a core mission role in their organizations as well. We're also seeing a huge emphasis on increased portfolios for CDOs to include AI capabilities. Ooh, that's the hot topic. <laughs> that definitely is a hot topic. But uh, that's a shift we are seeing. Uh, we've seen several leading cabinet-level agencies change their CDO titles to include AI in it oh, and expand that portfolio out. So yes, there has definitely been a shift as far as what the CDOs are focused on today versus what I was seeing, say, 10 years ago. Again, you know, all of it definitely has to align back with what and where your organization is in their overall data maturity. Sure. Because you can't just operate in a silo. You have to be aligned with what the organization is focused on and what your other colleagues and what your other leadership goals are. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about AI. I hear you that in some cases you're seeing folks add AI to their titles and all of that. What are some examples of the actual, uh, let's say, activities that they have to now perform in their agency regarding AI and maybe compliance with other regulations that are growing in there. This feels meta and circular, right? <laughs> Where the agencies might be creating AI-related regulation and they also have to follow it at the same time. So, so that could be really challenging, I would think. So what are you seeing out there now with the growth of focus on AI? Well, I think, again, you know, there are pockets of organizations that are leading the way mm -hmm. in adopting AI. So, you know, again, I see um, a vast variety of organizations that are either still exploring AI. And then on the other side of the spectrum are the ones who are really ready to, you know, start scaling AI to mission areas. Mm -hmm. So it's a wide variety of what I'm seeing. But again, there are some CDOs who are definitely starting to include AI in their portfolio. And for them, of course, you know, they're starting off, as I recommend to them, you know, start off by connecting the dots with your data and your AI strategy. Mm -hmm. No one is out there in the market to just do AI for AI. Mm -hmm. So if you're leveraging AI, what are the specific mission problems that we are hoping to solve with that? There's some research that was done in 2018, where public sector respondents said they had only 43% of them stated that AI was important to their organization's success in mm -hmm. 2018. Mm -hmm. And a similar survey in 2021 came back and said over 90% of public sector respondents said that AI was important for mission <laughs> outcomes. And, and, and I now? can tell you, yes. And, and I'm like, what if we were running the survey today? Yeah, we can yeah. only imagine the numbers. So I guess my point is, yes, the CDOs and government executives are definitely seeing the value that AI can bring along in adding efficiencies and cost reduction and automation. Ah, but yeah, yeah. but where they're able to adopt and actually able to operationalize really depends on the specific pain points and the mission areas that they are wanting to revolutionize. Where can transformation really add value? 
Is it for helping address document generations? Is it for case management? Right. Is it for just automation and augmentation of back office functions? Customer experience, citizen experience. How can we streamline and apply AI to enhance citizen and customer engagement? Because our role in the public sector ultimately is to make sure that government services are more user-friendly, make resources easier to navigate and consume, right? So I think there are a plethora of use cases that we can talk about. But it all goes back to where do we start from? And we always say, you know, don't try to boil the ocean. Think about specific areas that you're trying to improve or add efficiencies to. Pilot and then scale. That's the approach that we are seeing. And as we talk to other CDOs who are trying to take on the AI roles to, you know, start small and then scale. Yeah. So the tried and true way to get going, right? Uh, Absolutely. You know, a lot of what you're describing is very similar to what, let's say, industry does as well, as far as how it's using AI to drive value in their organizations, as well as, let's say, commercially. For you, commercially, you know, for, for the government space, it's really helping citizens to learn or do something more easily, it sounds like, right? So are you seeing things like that citizens are able to essentially interact with a chat bot? to get answers to their questions that any given agency might be responsible for? Is that the type of thing that you're already seeing or are there other examples? You're spot on. I mean, I think the application of AI is very similar in government as it could be in the commercial space. I mean, eventually it's all about adding efficiencies, right? So, I mean, if we take the chatbot example, yes, I mean, the COVID and the pandemic times were a perfect example, right? Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, chatbots were being developed just to get some basic answers as uh, organizations were standing up their COVID response websites and health organizations were standing up those websites for Mm -hmm. vaccinations and symptoms processing. So I think we've already seen that and government is no different in continuing to leverage uh, similar technology for solving these problems. But what is interesting is even during the times of COVID, like if I go back a couple of years, you know, mm-hmm. we were doing chatbots even then, right? And even before. But some agencies or some organizations were just probably not acknowledging that that is still AI application, right? <laughs> we're using chatbots and that's AI because I would sometimes talk to organizations and be like, where are you in your AI journey? And we're like, we haven't started. I'm like, but you have. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's something that comes up often is like, you know, we are already leveraging those technologies. We're already seeing value from it. And sometimes it's just not so obvious that, yeah, this is AI. I mean, frankly, we're living at a time that I think AI is pretty much embedded in anything and everything we're doing, whether it's personal or business life. And sometimes we just have to pause and acknowledge and understand, yeah, that this is AI and we're really engulfed with it. Adita, I love how you said we're already doing it or you were already leveraging AI to enable your organization's mandates, missions, uh, objectives, and all of that. It's telling me, in a way, there's a lot that's new, but there's a lot that's not. (laughs) And, you know, applying principles and practices and all of that just make it more valuable, more realistic, more actionable. I'm hearing you say a lot in there. You want to talk about that? It might be also interesting to talk about what you initially questioned me on is like, how are CDOs reacting to Mm. it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yes, they're seeing the value and they're seeing the value that you and I were just discussing about it. But I think CDOs and data leaders also have that increased responsibility to ensure that the data that is being fed into these AI systems and AI-powered applications is trustworthy. And I think that has so much more value when you're thinking about it in the public sector, because now you are providing data to AI solutions that is directly impacting citizen services. 
right? So I, I cannot overemphasize the value of ethics and how CDOs are closely paying attention to this. So whether it's Gen AI or any other emerging technology, some of the key conversations that I continue to have with CDOs is, well, that's great, but how do I continue to leverage these technologies, but still ensure that we are doing that in a trustworthy and right. ethical manner? Right, right. And just think about that because, you know, when we're talking about trustworthiness, you know, that's not just something that you get into when you're talking about data quality, but you also got to think about it starting with just the lineage. Where does this Where data it? originate? <laughs> right, you right. know, how has it been transformed? Like what happened in its life cycle? Right. You know, what's the audit trail behind it? Yeah. Right. So the lineage and the provenance and then throw in the privacy and the security concerns. Are we really using data for what I collected it for? If I'm collecting data from a citizen, am I really using and applying it commensurate with what I told the citizens I'm going to do that, right? So the compliance and the regulatory needs are important, but I think there's also that human value and the human trust aspect in it as CDOs start to deal with this. So the lineage, privacy, security, data quality, how do we mitigate bias? How do we ensure that the data set that we are providing does not have inherent bias? All of those are critical pieces that CDOs are considering as they are thinking about shaping the data that is fed into the AI models. To wrap that up, Jay, one yeah. last thing, what we continue to talk about is we've created a trustworthy AI framework, mm -hmm. which we use to kind of guide CDOs on how to think about mm -hmm. uh, planning for your data as you get it ready for ingestion with AI algorithms. That's maybe a topic that we can dive into later, but that's how we are going about with those conversations by creating some sort of a trustworthy AI framework that CDOs can leverage as they start to collaborate with their AI partners. Oh, that's just wonderful. And what's going through my mind as you were describing all of those responsibilities for chief data officers and data offices in general within these agencies is also the notion of transparency, maybe for the citizenship to help foster that trust, right? Like you said, quality is important. So is ethical treatment of data, preventing bias in data, et cetera. The transparency, I think we would call that AI explainability or, or you know, right? Mm -hmm. So so the explainability for our machine learning models is also really important so that citizens have a sense of, you know, visibility into what's being done with data. Is that part of the playbook as well? There are some parts of it that are touched in the playbook, yes, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. especially as we talk about, you know, the broader role of the CDO mm -hmm. and the emphasis on AI explainability and the transparency that you talked about, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Gen AI and other emerging technologies that come along, they're game changers in their own ways, right? Mm -hmm. But they all come with risk and we have to be conscious about how we mitigate that risk and create frameworks to help solve those problems. So that is the approach that, CDOs are taking, that is the approach that we talk about in the playbook and some of the other research that we're publishing just now. So, so much more to cover, Jay. That's great. You know, I want to shift gears for a second, Arata. You've had a pretty amazing career, 20 plus years in the data space within the public sector. As a woman in data, how are you encouraging other women right, to get into this type of technology or this field, uh, data analytics, AI, particularly in, in the public sector? How are you encouraging others to get into this world? Like I said, I've been in the industry for, what, about 23, 24 years now, mm -hmm. and uh, largely having spent time, Jay, in the public sector, I can't tell you how many memories I have of me just being that 
single female voice, right. either in leadership meetings or just in staff meetings and talking about data analytics and um, AI. And at that time, early days, you know, 23 years ago, it might have been like a good to have, like we need to have women here and it's mm-hmm. a nice to have thing. Mm-hmm. But today in 2023, it is no longer just a good to have and a nice to have. In the times that we're living where AI is literally mainstream Mm -hmm. and we don't have that choice that we do not have women and diverse groups represented on the table anymore. Mm -hmm. Because if we do that, we're going to create solutions, AI-powered solutions that are going to have some biases that could have been mitigated earlier. Right. 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 That's even more important, again, as we think about these AI-powered solutions catering back to our citizens and Mm -hmm. impacting you, me, (laughs) and, and, you know, all of us, right? So I think it's no longer just a nice-to-have like it used to be very many decades ago, but Uh today it is needed that all AI teams have a diverse set of people developing, curating, and being involved in those processes. That's right. Right? So... What can I do and what am I able to do in Mm -hmm. that area? I mean, Jay, having been through those uh, scenarios myself, being the only female in so many of these leadership meetings or these team meetings, I mean, I tried to go out and talk about my genuine experiences, like Mm -hmm. what were my experiences, what I went through, and that there is a role and a space for women in data today. And the more we talk about it and the more we break down those stereotypes, I think the more we can encourage women to participate. It's just really heartbreaking that if you look at the 2020 World Economic Forum report, it showed that globally only 26% of professionals who are working in data and AI were women. Only 26%. And that's just heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. So I think what we did specifically for the federal government space was we have collaborated with Women in Data, which is a global organization. And we have uh, launched a chapter called the Federal Government Chapter, specifically to cater for the women in the federal government space. In my mind, as we were working through Women in Data and through Deloitte Channels, my goal was to create a community to bring together women in this space to grow, to network, to have upskilling opportunities, to have mentorship, and also sponsorship Mm -hmm. so that we can lean on each other, we can get inspired with each other, and continue to grow and have more women hopefully join this space. Oh, that's great. The Women in Data organization has a federal chapter, is what I heard you say, right? That's correct. Great. So we'll, we'll put some links in the notes. Thanks for bringing that up. I have kind of two questions. I totally hear you that diverse staff is a must-have, not a nice-to-have for all the reasons that you state, including very practically, let's say, the data biases that could occur in AI models. In this day and age, what are the current kinds of, let's say, roadblocks, challenges that might prevent more women from being in this field? And maybe as a follow-up to that, as an ally, what can I do? right? Where should I be thinking? And what are my behaviors that could help remove some of those roadblocks and challenges? Well, Jay, just you asking that question already kind of emphasizes that you are an ally who is (laughs) hoping to help solve this equation. (laughs) There are many out there. I welcome you to join the federal chapter for uh, Women in Data. We welcome not only women, but also male allies, because I do believe that we need both sides of the equation to help solve this bigger problem. Mm -hmm. So we welcome male allies to join us. But as far as, you know, what we're seeing in today's date, as far as why women in data are not as many as we would like to be. And so if if I reflect and look at 
what research shows. You know, I think there is still that implicit and societal bias that men are often still required in technical fields. Mm. And that's not something that is just happening today. That has been happening for ages. I think research shows that if women or girls, when they're in middle school or high school, did not have like a role model or a, mm. or a mentor who was in the data field, they may not even know about that field. So the societal stereotypes of only, you know, boys can do certain robotics activities and so forth right. definitely play a role because in middle school and high school is when a lot of kids start thinking about which careers you might end up with. Yeah. So if they're not even exploring those areas, they're probably not going to end up in those areas. Right. So how do we continue to increase the number of role models we see around us so that those implicit biases do not play in? There's also the issue of income inequality. Studies mm. repeatedly show that there is a large wage gap between men and women. So as conversations like you and I are having today, as we continue to elaborate on them, I think, I think we all have that responsibility to see how can we ensure when we are hiring and how can we ensure that our hiring processes are not adding to these income inequalities. What can we yeah, do more right. about providing a work-life balance for women? which again, research shows, you know, is uh, has been accentuated during the pandemic, right? There were more women that were impacted with job losses, more women that left the workforce. So how do we as a society, how do we as leaders continue to create an environment where women can get that work-life balance while still catering to these critical technology jobs? There's a lot of ways that we can still continue to provide benefits to women and encourage them to join this technical industry. But I think it comes down to each one of us to do our parts. Right. Now, Jay, we just released a white paper that goes into details on how to bridge this gap in technology jobs, specifically in STEM jobs. I'll be happy to share a link with you to share that with the yeah, audience please. that goes into some of these research insights, as well as tips for what organizations and male allies could do to support and change the equation. Oh, that's really great. Thank you. I can't wait to put that in the notes and read it myself. There's a lot of intertwined, let's say, historical and societal challenges and barriers that are out there that are causing these sorts of imbalances in our teams uh, and, and otherwise. So to work backwards from that, I guess, hiring practices, it sounds like we need more women in leadership roles to do the hiring <laughs> as one way to begin with addressing some of those balance issues within teams. And then you're working further upstream as young girls start getting interested in or might be encouraged to be interested in STEM education, perhaps in entering in fields like robotics and data science, things like that. It's really connecting all the way through. Absolutely. I think you summarized it really well, Jay. How do we continue to empower women to not only take jobs in the STEM field, but how do we also continue to do our part to ensure that there are more women leaders in this space? And how can we change that number? Because I believe right now, the last research shows that there were only 25% of the STEM leaders that were women. Right. So like, how do we change that equation? And I think that responsibility falls on each one of us as we continue to hire responsibly and continue to talk about this. So can you tell us about your journey? So it goes back 20 plus years. How did you become interested in this field and then work your way through and up to this amazing position that you're in now? 
Wow, you're really taking me back memory lane now, huh? We need to know. Yeah, I started, I went to school to be a commerce major. I had some interest in computers and IT at that point, but mm -hmm. had no idea that I would really end up here. I mean, you know, 25 years ago, I did not think that I'm going to grow up to be a CDO. Right. Well, <laughs> well those didn't exist then. <laughs> so uh, I started off my journey as a data analyst and my journey to public sector started off as a database analyst where I was helping out with wage information systems. At one point, I was very, very technical and hands-on and less on the business side. And I think that was a big change in my career where I started giving a lot more focus on understanding the business side of things and not just doing technical as a side. Very early. That's great. And starting to understand like, well, we're collecting this data for what? Like the so what from everything we did. I think that was a major change for me in how I started to think about how and where we are collecting data, what's the impact, who can access it. And I think that brought about a shift in how I started to handle my day-to-day -day operations because I was spending more and more time directly with clients understanding uh, how are they going to use this system that we're developing for them and so forth, right? Then in about 2017 is when, you know, I got an opportunity to broaden my perspective and start thinking about things in a statewide manner. Uh -huh. So everything that I was doing for like maybe a department or two or three, four departments suddenly changed into a statewide perspective to think, well, how is state collecting data overall? And uh, that's when, you know, the General Assembly passed the mandate for the CDO in the state of Arkansas. Right. And the, one of the first things that we did there was, again, you know, to try to understand, well, what data do we have? <laughs> Let's start with an inventory and try to understand the business need behind collecting this data. So started off with data inventory, set up governance for the state as a whole, started off in the open data path. And I guess that's how continue to transition over to industry and now continue to advise and help other CDO set up their data offices. What an amazing career. You know, Adita, there are a couple of things that really stick out for me in your journey. Maybe that relates even to the women in data challenge that's out there. I hear a lot of questions, right? You ask a lot of questions. You're a curious person. You want to know, right? And the things that you want to know are the things that leaders want to know. Tell me what the business value is. Tell me what the business need is. If we're going to let's say, encourage and grow more leaders. It's that curiosity and need to be attaching data to the business. And that business can be, of course, government agencies as well. But what you're telling me is the building blocks to leadership are curiosity and attaching value to the technical work that you've been doing. What a great story. And if that's a focus for folks, I think that's how we're going to grow leaders. Jay, I think that's a great summary. Yes, I think uh, all the technical work we do is eventually aligned for mission and business outcomes. So the sooner we can align our data and AI strategies aligned to mission goals and having an executable plan and not just having a strategy for a strategy is definitely, <laughs> right, right, right. definitely a winning formula. Right. We're not writing a strategy to fill up uh, you know, words on a page. It's it, What did you call it? You called it the so what, right? The why of data, the so what of data. I love that phrase. That all stems from your curiosity and need to know how your data and technology connects to that mission outcome that the agency has. Love it. One of the things that you mentioned that's a, a key focus for CDOs in the government space is upskilling and making sure that that talent is prepared to be successful with data. Can you go into that a little bit more? What's on, what, on the mind of the CDO with regard to skills, uh, understanding data, et cetera? 
in today's world where we're just surrounded with AI, and when we think about AI, you know, think about the exponential volume of data that is being created behind the scenes and in front of us, right? Mm -hmm. If we are not putting enough focus on ensuring that our workforce is able to read, comprehend, and apply data that's in front of them, then mm -hmm. we are not doing our due diligence to ensure success for them. And I say that because I've gone through this myself where you would present the coolest of the dashboards, right? <laughs> but, yeah. but if the audience that you're presenting to does not understand how to interpret that data, does not know the common definitions that are feeding that dashboard, yeah, right, right. then you are not gaining consensus in the right way. You are not going to make intelligent decisions out of that, right? right. It's, it's the same thing with a data app or an AI app. It doesn't matter how cool a tool is or how impressive an app is. If the individuals that are your audience or your workforce doesn't understand what it is, how it works, what answers can it give you, mm -hmm. and if you don't feel comfortable using it, then you're not going to take full advantage of it. And for that reason, it is so important that organizations continue to invest in solid data literacy or uh, data fluency or yep. data acumen programs, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. to ensure that your workforce can actually not just read, write, but comprehend data ethically and apply data ethically. So uh, CDOs I've seen recently are taking a very, very deliberate effort in this front and have started to incorporate this as a key pillar of their data culture change uh -huh. and incorporated in their data strategies. And that's a welcome change yeah. <laughs> to see that, you know, they're taking this seriously and that data literacy is very, very foundational for success of an organization in today's times. So you're saying the skills focus is not just the data practitioners like a data scientist or a data engineer. You're also saying general data literacy for everyone in an agency is a big focus for CDOs right now in the government space. Absolutely correct, Jay. I mean, it's no longer just like it, data literacy is just for a data scientist. Data literacy is for everyone in at any level in the organization. And uh, having that acknowledgement and sponsorship from the executive level, the sooner we have it, the easier it is to get those deployed and have success for that all through the organization. You know, there are more similarities than differences between government agencies and companies, at least as far as data and analytics functions go. I'm kind of surprised about it. I mean, one of the key drivers for data programs in government is to capture value from data. Well, in business, of course, that means making money, right? Saving money. At a government agency, that value is also about efficiencies for their operations, but it's also in terms of helping citizens. That helps all of us throughout society to get easy access to information. And that information affects our lives, our health, and more. And of course, we can't not talk about AI. It's great to see government taking innovative approaches toward their agency missions, helping citizens, all using advanced technology. Another similarity that's neat, it's kind of a circular reference here, work with me, it's so many data programs in business got created in their first place because of regulatory mandates. Now it's business. Now those regulations were written by government agencies in the first place. Now those very same agencies have to comply with their own regulations and then some. For instance, mandated transparency and access to data for the public. I love that. 
And we got to ensure ethical and appropriate use of data by the government too. That can get pretty tricky. So to switch gears, and you know me by now, I love a great career story. And Auditus is as impressive as it is educational for others to take cues from. For one thing, curiosity, huge. Just asking questions, right, to probe for understanding is both a trait and a skill to hone. If you're a hiring manager in the data space, look for that in your candidates, encourage it, cultivate curiosity throughout your teams. And finally, don't forget to check out the show notes for all the links that Audits has shared with us. Things like the CDO playbook, the women in data organization, and so many more things. I love days like this. Getting to meet and learn from data leaders like Audita is an inspiring highlight for me on the data download. And I hope you all feel the same too. For Calibra, this is the data download. I'm your host, Jay Militia, and we'll see you next time. Want even more insight into managing your data? Visit Calibra.com slash podcast for additional resources on the topics covered in our show. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a new episode. And a five-star review certainly doesn't hurt our chances with the algorithm. It's all about the algorithm, isn't it, folks? It's a great way to help us reach new listeners, and we truly do appreciate your support. The Data Download is a production of Calibra in collaboration with Stories Bureau.